Good morning, everyone, and welcome to a special edition of A Vision for You. Today is Sunday, September 21st, 2014. My name is Leah, and I'm your moderator. The share ID for Friday, September 19th is 6892. That's 6892. This morning, A Vision for You presents Life on the Other Side of Step 12. The 12 steps, as outlined in the big book, represent a process of spiritual awakening. We submit to a simple process that is not easy, yet takes us to a place we've never been. We didn't even know it existed. The real advantage of these steps is that they are a specific method for producing a personal transformation, a change in the way a person thinks, in the way a person feels, and in the way a person behaves. The big book suggests continuing to use these steps and our mind to develop our vision of God's will each day, our goal, purpose, and mission today. The big book suggests that through the steps, we align our will with God's will. And with this attitude and the 12 steps as our path, we cannot fail. Here to speak with us this morning about life on the other side of step 12 is Barbara A. Barbara is a recovered compulsive overeater from Parsippany, New Jersey, who is a loyal servant of Overeaters Anonymous. She spends much time intensively working with other compulsive overeaters and carrying this message of recovery. And welcome to A Vision for You, Barbara. Thank you, Leah. I just want to make sure that you can hear me clearly. Indeed. Thanks. Hey, hi, everyone. I'm Barbara, a compulsive overeater from Parsippany, New Jersey. My home group is the Saturday morning, no-nonsense, positive share newcomers meeting at the Parsippany Library. I won't go into great detail about how I found OA, what happened, how I did my steps, or my amazing story, because that's already on the Vision for You website under the special edition tab for March 2nd, 2014, when I spoke on the rewards of program. But I will tell you that I went to my first meeting on June 10th, 2000. At that time, I weighed 237 pounds. I've been continuously absent since the day of that first meeting. I worked my steps as outlined in the big book when I was in the rooms for about four months, and my life is absolutely wonderful. If 14 years ago, I had found a lamp, rubbed it, and a genie came out and asked me what I wanted my life to be like, what I would have wished for would have been so far inferior to what I have today because I would not have been able to ask for the life I have now, because back then I didn't even know that levels of this kind of happiness even existed. As I mentioned earlier this year, I had the privilege of speaking on the Rewards of Program. I'd like to take this opportunity to thank all of you who had called me, emailed me, or requested the PDF file on how I sponsor. I received an unbelievable amount of phone calls and emails It was a pleasure to speak with or write back to each of you. And I'd also like to apologize for being unable to say yes to those of you who had asked if I could sponsor you. I've always believed and continue to believe that the steps should be done one-on-one 
in person, face-to-face, and I've taken hundreds of people through the big book this way. I'm always working with four to seven people on their steps, as well as sponsoring for food, and that takes up the bulk of my doing service time. My other service work includes being the chair of West Jersey's Intergroup, the Region 7 representative, and the treasurer for my home group. But please don't think that I spend all my time doing service or that I don't have a life outside of the rooms. I work a full-time job. I go on four to six cruises a year. I go out to dinner three to four times a week with friends. I walk around the lake by my house. I go to Atlantic City. I spend an unusually large amount of time with my mom, two sisters, and the rest of my family. I travel back and forth to Florida and Virginia to spend time with my daughter and my grandchildren. I watch my favorite TV shows, and I still fit in getting enough sleep. I was delighted when Leah asked me if I would speak again. What I would like to do this time is talk about what life is like on the other side of Step 12 when the steps are done, as outlined in the big book. Instead of just jumping into that, I'd like to start with a brief overview of the steps. Step 1, I admit I have a problem. Step 2, I believe there's something that can solve my problem. Step 3, I make a decision to give this something a try. Step four, I do four written, five-column inventories on my resentments, my fears, and my harms in order to find the things that block me from this something. And by doing these inventories as outlined in the big book, I find out that the things blocking me are my character defects. Step five, I verbally admit that I have these character defects and reveal my deepest, darkest secrets to my sponsor. Step six. Now that I've seen on paper that it's my character defects causing all my problems, I want them removed. Step seven, I ask God to remove these defects and teach me to be their opposite. I take every opportunity I get to do the footwork of acting as if I am the opposite of my character defects. Step eight, I realize that the things I have done in the past have really hurt others and I am willing, as long as it doesn't harm anyone, do whatever is necessary to fix these. Step nine, I go out and make any necessary apologies and restitutions, but more importantly, I start to amend the way I think and the way I act. Step 10, at the exact moment, I am angry, worried, afraid, about to harm someone or have harmed somebody, I immediately do steps four, six, seven, eight, nine, and then five. In step 10, I learned that form does not matter. Fear, worry, depression, anxiety, anger, hatred, jealousy, and any other negative feeling are all equally disturbing to my peace of mind and my connection to God. And by doing the step 10 immediately when these come up, I get rid of the things blocking me off from my higher power. I learned in step 10 that my job is to simply allow all obstacles that come between me and God be quietly and immediately removed, and step 10 allows me to do this. Step 11, based on my experience with the previous steps, I realize how magnificent my higher power is, and I am now willing to actually let God be in charge of my entire life. I review my day at night looking for anything I missed doing a step 10 on and looking for anything that needs to be corrected. In the morning, I make plans on how I'm going to make these needed corrections and how I'm going to implement the lessons I learned yesterday into what I do today. I stay connected to God throughout the day, looking for directions from Him, 
and I reconnect as needed. In step 11, I stop telling God what he should do and only have two prayers. The first one is, thank you, thank you, thank you. And the second one is, please tell me what you want me to do and give me the strength to carry that out. Step 12 is in three parts. The first part is, having had a spiritual awakening as the result of these steps. A spiritual awakening to me, meaning that my way of thinking and my way of acting have dramatically changed for the better. A spiritual awakening to me, meaning that I know there's a God personal to me who loves me, is always there for me, and only wants the best for me. A spiritual awakening to me, meaning that the knowledge of the constant presence, guidance, and love of my higher power is the most important thing in my life without exception. The second part of step 12 is carry this message to compulsive overeaters. And to me, the message is, if you're a compulsive overeater, there's a way out of all this misery. Just do exactly what it says to do in the first 164 pages of the big book, and you will never overeat again, nor you ever feel as bad as you do right now. And then there's the third part of step 12. Practice these principles in all our affairs. The principles themselves are honesty, hope, faith, courage, integrity, willingness, humility, self-discipline, love, perseverance, spiritual awareness, and service, unity, trust. So what happens when I'm finished doing everything the big book says to do? I start to live a magnificent life, and here's why I have a magnificent life. As a result of doing the first eight steps as outlined in the big book, the way I think and the way I act start to change for the better. I get to see that I have a part in everything, and because nine times out of ten, I'm the one who gets the ball rolling, I can change my circumstances, and as a result, I'm not walking around angry all the time. At this point, I am less selfish and self-centered because I start to take into consideration how other people feel. I'm not running to the food, and as a result, I feel healthier, and I have stopped isolating. I'm not blaming the world and spending days figuring out how I can retaliate nor beating myself up because I falsely believe I'm a terrible person. After I've worked step nine and made all the amends I can make and I'm willing to make the ones that cannot be done at this exact moment, my way of thinking is the complete opposite of where I was when I first came into the rooms. And because my thoughts are the precursor to how I act, every aspect of all my relationships got better. I became a better woman, mother, daughter, sister, worker, friend, basically just a better person walking down the street. And because my thought process had changed, the nine-step promises came true for me, and these promises are the exact opposite of the bedevilments found on page 52 of the Big Book. By doing step 10, every time I was angry, worried, afraid, about to harm someone or have harmed someone, I learned to my higher power instead of the food. Step 10 was where I learned that everything that happens in my life is from my higher power, either to teach me something I need to learn or to protect me from something later on. By realizing this, I learned not to be judgmental of people, things, or situations. Step 10 taught me everything is put in my life for a specific reason. The other thing that happened in step 10 was that my head stopped chewing at me. I stopped spending so much time thinking about what others had done to me and instead focused on how I could be the opposite of my character defect. 
By doing the steps as outlined in the big book, I got the opportunity to see how wonderful my higher power really is. And in step 11, I finally was able to carry out the decision I made in step 3 to turn my life and my will over to the care of God. In step 11, God's will became evident, and I started to enthusiastically look for direction from him. I'm going to deviate here a little and tell you about my first step 11 experience. I was up in Alaska on a cruise. Anyone who knows me knows that I usually don't get off the ship when it's docked, but Alaska was having a freak warm spell, and it was 78 degrees out. I was listening to a book on tape called The Street Lawyer and decided to get off the ship and walk around the town listening to this book. I was on the part where a homeless man walked into a law office and tied up all the lawyers. He pointed a gun at one of the lawyers and asked him how much he had spent on lunch that day. The lawyer responded that he had spent $30, and the homeless man asked, do you know how many people that $30 could feed in a soup kitchen? It was a few seconds late, few seconds later that I turned the corner and there was a soup kitchen in front of me. So I went in and donated $30. This is how my step 11 works. I think of something, hear something, or I'm inspired, and almost immediately the opportunity to act it out happens. The other thing that happened in step 11 was because my brain was not continuously filled with chatter about what others had done to me, and instead I was focused on being grateful, my thoughts were now very gentle. Because my head was not spinning with vicious thoughts, I got to hear the whispering, negative tapes that were playing in my head since I was a little girl. You'll never amount to anything. No one will want you. That sort of thing. And because I finally got to hear them, I was able to do something about them. I wrote each one on a separate piece of paper, then wrote lie in big letters across the first one, and then wrote the truth. I did this for each one. So, for example, I wrote, no one will ever want me on top of the paper, then wrote L-I-E across it. Then I wrote, I have been married twice, which means at least two people wanted me. As soon as I was able to show myself this negative belief was a lie, it stopped being my truth, and I stopped acting acting in accordance with this lie because we are self-fulfilling prophesizers, and we make our beliefs true through our behaviors. And because I was at a point in my life where I felt safe, I was able to look at this calmly and see it for the lie it was and stop believing it. I was able to do this because of something that happened to me when I led a meeting. I'll preface this story by saying this. If I've been looking at things in my life through a funhouse mirror, how can I believe my interpretation of it? The steps showed me what my misconceptions were and what the real truth is, and now I can look at things through a clean window. Here's the story. While leading a meeting, I decided to talk about spirituality as part of my qualification. At one point, I said, at any time I want to see God, all I have to do is look at a dime. I knew something was up by the puzzled look on everyone's face. Because I was physically in a very safe place with people who loved me, I asked, what? Someone asked, what are you talking about? And I answered, there's a picture of God on a dime. My belief for this was that when I was four years old, my older sister, who was a genius and taught me everything as she learned it, taught me how to read. So at four years old, I looked at a dime and saw the words, In God We Trust, and believed that the profile on the dime was a picture of God. It wasn't until that exact moment in that meeting that I questioned my belief about this and realized that I had been mistaken, 
not wrong but mistaken about this for 41 years. It then brought me to a place where I could look at as an adult who can determine truth from life at other misconceptions I had since childhood. So now we're up to step 12. At this point, I just have a spiritual awakening and was constantly having one spiritual experience after another. I started to sponsor people not only for food, but for the steps as well. By sponsoring, I felt a part of, and I felt useful. I also started to focus on the people I was sponsoring, which took all my attention off of me, and as a result, I couldn't be depressed and self-pity or feeling like I was lacking anything. I got joy in watching those I was working with blossom, and my gratitude for everything continued to grow and grow. I felt this deep connection with my higher power, especially when his words came out of my mouth while I was working with someone. I was inspired to help others, and things in my life continued to get better and better. Here's how I learned to do the last part of Step 12, live by the principles of this program. While all the literature is great, there are two books that I believe are all I need to get to the point of being recovered. The first one is the big book, which gives me the directions I need to follow. The second book is the AA 12 and 12, which was written by Bill after living this program for 15 years, giving a more in-depth explanation of what I need to do and why. So after I read and did what the big book said to do, I took out the AA 12 and 12 and read the chapter on Tradition 1. After that, I wrote how I would implement this tradition into my personal everyday relationships with everyone I came in contact with, and not just the people in OA. Then I started to incorporate what I wrote into my daily living. I did this for each tradition. So for tradition one, or common welfare should come first, personal recovery depends upon OA unity, I wrote. In my personal relationships, I won't look at what is good for me or what I can get out of it. Every relationship I'm in should be a positive and rewarding experience for everyone who is part of it, and I will act in a manner that is unselfish, kind, caring, and loving. I will not do anything that will hurt anyone or make them feel bad. Tradition two, our group purpose, there is but one, ultimate authority, a loving God as he may express himself in our group conscious. Our leaders are but trusted servants they do not govern. My personal relationships, I will realize that I'm not in charge of anyone. Everyone has their own higher power, and it is their choice whether they listen to him or not. I can make suggestions if I'm asked for help, but the ultimate decision of how people act and what they do rests totally with them, and I will not force my opinion or be upset if my suggestions are not followed. Tradition three, the only requirement for OA membership is the desire to stop eating compulsively. In my personal relationships, I will only be in relationships that I want to be in. I will not use anyone for personal or financial gain, nor will I allow someone who hurts me physically or emotionally to remain in my life. I will not force others to be a part of my life through threats or their fear of retaliation. Tradition four, each group should be autonomous except in matters affecting other groups or OA as a whole. In my personal relationships, I will do the next right thing and be inspired by my higher power on how to act and what to say and do. I won't do anything that hurts anyone else, nor will I criticize anyone. I won't do or say anything that would reflect badly on someone else. Tradition five, each group has but one primary purpose, to carry its message to the compulsive reader who still suffers. 
In my personal relationships, my primary purpose is to act as God's agent, being kind, caring, and loving. I will carry the message of love to everyone I come in contact with. Tradition six, an OA group ought never endorse, finance, or lend the OA name to any related facility or outside enterprise that the problems of money, property, and prestige divert us from our primary purpose. In my personal relationships, I will stay out of other people's business. I will only do the things that keep me connected to my higher power and that fulfill my primary purpose of being kind, caring, and loving. Tradition seven, every OA group ought to be fully self-supporting, declining outside contribution. I will support myself and not look to others for financial aid. I will work hard and earn the money I need and not expect others to come through for me. If there's something I want, I will work towards earning the money to get it and not force or harass someone else into buying it for me. Tradition eight, Overeaters Anonymous should remain forever non-professional but our service centers may employ special workers. I will do everything I can when I can, but if I need help, I will seek that help. I will not make money off of or charge for my service work. Tradition nine, OA as such will never be organized or may create service boards or committees directly responsible to those they serve. I will always remember that I am responsible for myself but I can accept help from others or form a group to perform a certain activity if I am unable to do what is needed to be done by myself. If a group is performing a service, I do not have to be in charge and give orders. I can be a contributing member sharing the work with others. Tradition 10, Overs Anonymous has no opinion on outside issues, hence the OA name would never be drawn into public controversy. I will have no opinion on anything except what I personally am doing, saying, or thinking. I will ignore the world's bad news unless there is something I can do about it, and then I will do whatever that is. In my personal relationships, I will not tell others what they should be doing or judge how others live their lives. Tradition 11, our public relations policy is based on attraction rather than promotion. You need always maintain personal anonymity at the level of press, radio, films, television, and other public media communication. I will not let my ego grow and make me think I am better or worse than anyone else. I will continue to rely and praise my higher power and live the life he wants me to live. I will not boast, show off, or try to convince anyone of anything. Instead, I will live this wonderful life and provide information to those who want to know how I achieved it. Tradition 12. Anonymity is the spiritual foundation of all these traditions, ever reminding us to place principles before personalities. Anonymity is the spiritual foundation within the rooms because when we're all at a meeting, we're all equal because unless we disclose more about ourselves, all anyone really knows about the other members is that we have the same problem and hopefully the same solution. Anonymity in my personal life means that everyone is equal and that I don't disclose private information about anyone. To my personal relationships, I will not criticize anyone for what they do. Instead, I will continue to live daily the principles of this program. I will respect that everyone does what they do based on their own character defects, program, and beliefs, and realize that how I feel is completely up to me and based on my own interpretation of things, and therefore there is no reason to get mad or retaliate. I will also look at everything that happens as a learning process and remember that these people are great teachers for me to learn how to act differently 
than I previously have. I will be kind to everyone. Then I moved on to the principles. Each step has three forms, the long form, the short form, and the one-word form, which is the principle. So, for example, step one's long form is the doctor's opinion in pages 1 through 46 of the big book. The short form is, we admitted we were powerless, that our lives had become unmanageable, and the one-word form or principle is honesty. I did a writing for each of the principles listing how I would act in accordance with each one. Again, after writing on each, I incorporated these behaviors into my daily life. Step one, honesty. I stick to my word and I'm honest without being brutal or cruel. If I say I'm going to do something, I do it. Others and their belongings are now safe when I'm around because I no longer take or touch anything that doesn't belong to me. Step two, hope. I wake up each morning thanking God for another day, and I can't wait to see what exciting things will happen in the next 24 hours. Step three, faith. I have faith that God is always with me and will keep me safe. I have faith that I can change if I surrender to a life that reflects God's justice, mercy, generosity, and love. Step four, courage. I know that there isn't any situation, real or imagined, that my higher power isn't strong enough and powerful enough to get me through. I now do the next right thing without any fear or worry. Step five, integrity. I now have a moral compass. I will not do anything that will cause harm to someone else. Everything I do will confirm that I am fair, trustworthy, loyal, and honest. Step six, willingness. I'm willing to follow my food plan. I'm willing to do things without having any preconceived outcome or expectations. I'm willing to do what the big book says to do, and I'm willing to have my higher power run every aspect of my life. Step seven, humility. I know I'm one of many. I'm just another plain human being in this world, not better and not worse than anybody else. I know that God is the one doing all these miracles, and I'm grateful for everything, and I don't take credit for any of it. Step eight, self-discipline. I have rules and regulations for my life and my eating that I follow. Just because I want something doesn't mean that I'm entitled to get what I want when I want it. My personal considerations can't be first and foremost. Step nine, love. I look upon everything and everyone as an extension of God, and if he is pure love, then so are they. I treat everyone and everything with the same respect and love I show to my higher power. It's not my job to judge others, but to just love them for who they are. Step 10, perseverance. With consistency and determination, I follow through on things and see them to their end. When I take on the responsibility of doing something, I continue to work on it and do whatever is needed to accomplish it. Step 11, spiritual awareness. I'm not only connected to my higher power, but I also have a wonderful relationship with him. I talk to him daily. I'm aware of his constant presence and guidance, and I express how grateful I am for everything. I'm living proof of what God can do, and I act accordingly. I know I need a connection to God more than I need to overeat. I know that God is everywhere, including deep inside me, and I know that if I connect to God, I am free of all sorrow, pain, fear, and loss. I feel that I am where I belong and that I am welcomed. I'm sustained by the love of God, and this is the answer to every problem I ever had. Step 12, service 
unity, trust. Being asked to do anything in OA is an honor. I know from my own experience, service is what kept me coming at the beginning, and it's what now makes me feel useful. I feel like I really, really belong, and I trust more people than someone could possibly know, and I have never, not even once, been hurt by this trust. I completely trust my higher power to the point where every thought, word, deed, outcome, person, and situation in my life is completely surrendered to him. I'd like to tell you the story about my learning the importance of doing service. My first meeting was on a Saturday. There were 65 people there. The guy I was dating back then would stop by whenever he wanted to and only stay for about 10 or 15 minutes and leave to go play cards. Two days after my first meeting, he did this, and I was feeling very lonely, so I decided to go to a meeting. When I got to this Monday night meeting, there was only one other person there, which gave me the opportunity to ask questions one-on-one. At the end of the hour, the person I was talking to told me she did the literature for this Saturday morning newcomers meeting and asked if I would take it over for six weeks while she was in California. I agreed to do this. That Saturday, I woke up and a very loud voice in my head screamed, you don't have to go to the meeting, and a very, very small voice whispered, but you have to go to the meeting because you have the literature. When I got to the meeting, everyone was so pleased to see me, and I felt a part of instead of a part from. The truth is that if I didn't do the service, I may have listened to my disease and not gone back to the meeting, and I don't want to think about what the consequences might have been. At the end of this 24-day period of doing a daily writing on each tradition and principle, I have now incorporated the behaviors I wrote for each tradition and principle into how I act every day. I'd like to give you two examples of the result of this kind of living. The first is when I went to a meeting that I normally did not go to. One of the women there asked the regular members if I was special because she had never seen someone smile so much. A similar thing happened this past week. My mom and I were shopping, and the sales clerk pointed to me and asked my mom, is she always this happy? The second example happened when I was making up a game for my 60th birthday party call, Who Knows Barbara Best. I was trying to make a fear for everyone and decided the best way to do that for the people I work with was to ask one of my office mates, who is Jehovah Witness and unable to attend the party for religious reasons, what she knows about me, so we could add those in as some of the questions. Instead of answering, you drive a blue Honda Civic or you have two grandsons, her response was, you were the kindest, most helpful person I ever met in my life. I'm at a point where the world conspires for me. Here are three examples of things that recently happened for me. I had my 60th birthday party in July, and over 100 people came. Everyone who was there was someone who was very special to me and a very important part of my life. This is so different than where I was before program. Back then, my sisters had planned a 30th birthday party for me and invited around 45 people. They had to cancel the hall they rented and switch the party to one of my sister's houses because most of the people didn't even respond, and those who did said no. The only people who attended my 30th birthday party were my immediate family and my two eating buddies who came for the free food. The difference now is that everyone who attended my 60th birthday party was there because as Sally Fields said, they really liked me. I was on a cruise at the end of July. 
I was in the casino using the onboard credit that was given to me as one of my birthday gifts. Within the first five minutes, I won the jackpot of $1,000. By the time this eight-day cruise was over, I had won four jackpots. On the last night of the cruise, the manager of the casino came over and gave me a letter good for a free cruise. I just got back from that free cruise yesterday. Before program, nothing good ever happened, and even if it did, I didn't notice it or I criticized it. The difference now is how much I appreciate everything. Because I now have a positive attitude, and especially because I let God run the show, I keep experiencing one great situation after another. And the last one. My grandson called me because all the courses he needed to take were filled up, and he could only take these college courses online. But each one was an extra $180, which he didn't have the money for. I was able to tell him not to worry, that this was not a problem, and I would pay the extra $900 for him. I was able to say that because I now have enough money not to worry about money. Paying for this would not render me homeless or have any devastating effect on my life. This is so different than where I was before program. I worked two full-time jobs and still couldn't pay off my charge card debt, nor could I meet all my bills. I would go out on dates and order tons of extra food to take home in doggy bags. I would steal money from my date's wallets to pay for my electric and phone bills. I would date people I really didn't like just so they would buy me stuff. My vacations every summer consisted of buying great adventure passes for my daughter and I and then going there every weekend. We would go every Saturday then sleep in my car overnight in a hospital's parking lot, then go back to Great Adventure the next day, the whole time eating peanut butter and jelly sandwiches I made at home for all our meals. I did this for years because that was all I could afford. This is another part of the nine-step promises that has come true for me, for if people and of economic insecurity will leave us. I didn't all of a sudden become rich, but I stopped being afraid of being poor and realized there is abundance in this world, and because my character defects of being lazy, entitled, and unwilling were removed, I started being a better, more cooperative worker, and as a result, got raises and promotions which increased my financial situation. There are some things you have to experience for yourself because there is no way to sufficiently explain them to someone who has never experienced them themselves. Being abstinent, being in love, having great sex, seeing your first grandchild for the first time, being connected to your higher power, and living a spiritual life. But I would like to give you some of my thoughts about what it's like for me to live on the other side of step 12. I have this unbelievable connection to the power that put this world together so beautifully. No one is affected by who I used to be anymore. I didn't find a higher power to stop me from eating, but to enable me to live. If lack of power was my problem, my solution was to find power. At this point, after hooking up with my higher power by doing the steps as outlined in the big book, I now have some power, God. This power came between me and the food, and I now have been given the power to manage my life. At this point, I am no longer powerless over doing things I don't want to or should not do, nor is my life unmanageable. God has done that. Some power, not me, came into my life by doing the work, and now I have a manageable life free of anger, fear, and harm to others. I feel useful. 
I now know the difference between being in the grace of God and having conscious contact with him. I am happy. I now talk experience, not theory. I realize there are no problems, just situations, and that there is a solution to every situation. Steps 10, 11, and 12 are not maintenance steps. They are growth steps. I do them because they help me grow in understanding and effectiveness. They keep me surrendered by stopping the reconstruction of my ego. I am at a point of oneness with everything. When at oneness, there is love, compassion, and understanding for everyone. I have the same personality no matter who I'm with or where I am. Acceptance is not the answer. If I'm accepting something, it means I'm still judging it as wrong or bad, I think that I have the power to deal with it. Surrendering is the answer. It's being at a place where I give up all control and just go with the flow of whatever God has planned. It's learning to work with change instead of resisting, judging, or fighting it. There is a state of being called recovered. It's a place where, while I may still have the allergic reaction of craving if I put white flour or sugar in my body, I no longer have the desire to do so. It's a place where I don't have to make a choice whether or not I will eat something that is not on my food plan because the thought of eating it doesn't even occur to me. It's a place where God comes first. It's a place where I stop being selfish, self-seeking, and self-centered. It's a place where I fit comfortably in my own skin and in this world. It's a place where fear has been removed and replaced by trust and love. I fall asleep as soon as my head hits the pillow because there are no yucky thoughts going through my head keeping me frustrated and awake. I learned that how I am right now is the outgrowth of all I've done up to this point and that as long as I'm directed by my higher power, what he has me do leads to a wonderful and happy life. I've learned to live in harmony with what is. I do the footwork I can and leave the results up to my higher power. I realize that nothing lasts forever, so I appreciate each and every person in my life and enjoy each and every moment as I'm living it. I know that overeating is not in my best interest. It does not convey love. Quite the opposite, it conveys self-hate. And because I now love myself and everything around me, I no longer do any hateful actions. I learned that I have done nothing I need to be punished for. I make no demands and have no expectations. I realize everything happens exactly as it's supposed to be. I know that I never have to feel lonely, abandoned, depressed, anxious, worried, helpless, or fearful because I'm connected to the one thing strong enough to keep me safe, and that's my higher power. I learned that everything I do sets in motion a cascade of events that eventually manifest into the present moment. All my decisions are easy now because I know that each one leads to happiness or unhappiness, and as long as I'm directed by my higher power, he will guide me to make decisions that lead to happiness. I know I'm connected to and a part of everything and act accordingly. I know that if I hurt someone else, I'm really hurting myself. I know that God's will and mine are the same. God wants me to be healed, and I don't want to be sick. I'm no longer confused, anxious, conflicted, or uneasy. I learned that by doing a bunch of little things, I can change everything. 
I know God loves me for who he is, not for what I am. My only real problem was separation from God. Once that was fixed, everything fell into place. All my relationships are rooted in mutual love, care, and respect. I may have been powerless when I first walked into the rooms, but now that I'm connected to God, I can use his strength. It's the same as flipping a switch on the wall and having a light come on. I don't have the power to illuminate anything, but I do have the power to connect you and use what does. I give a loving meaning to everything I see and everyone I come in contact with because when I do this, my world becomes loving. I know I am safe. I have been free from everything that causes me pain. When I need to make an apology, I don't do it for selfish reasons. The word apology comes from the Greek word apologia, meaning a speech in one's own defense. I know that an apology without restitution or sincere desire to change doesn't mean anything. If all I do is say I'm sorry and nothing else, all I'm really saying is, I hurt you, I feel bad, and you better forgive me so I can feel better. A real apology is when my focus is on the other person, I truly want the hurt to be gone, and I'm willing to do whatever it takes to make that happen. I know that where I am, God is. Step 10 is a continuous fine-tuning of who I'm supposed to be. It's God's way of putting me in the situations he wants me to be in to learn certain lessons. The difference between step 10, which is done immediately, and step 11, which is reviewing and being guided, is that step 10 is where God teaches me lessons Hello? Yes, Barbara. Oh, can, you, can you still hear me? Absolutely. Okay, sorry about that. I was getting a call from someone, that or a message that they couldn't. Sorry, let me continue on. Um, sorry. Um, let me go back a bit. Step 10 is a continuous fine-tuning of who I'm supposed to be. It's God's way of putting me in the situations he wants me to be in to learn certain lessons. The difference between step 10, which is done immediately, and step 11, which is reviewing, planning, and being guided, is that step 10 is where God teaches me lessons, and step 11 is where I put those lessons into practice. I can only find God right here, right now. That is the only place where I can connect with him. If I'm feeling guilty about or reliving the past or worrying about the future, I've lost my connection to God and will be unable to be directed by him. My negative reactions spring from the demands of an inner, unsatisfied person. As soon as I hooked up with my higher power and started to live in a constant state of gratitude, all thoughts of control, as well as my selfish demands, vanished. It's easy for me to know what God's will is. It's any action that allows love to grow. I live in a blissful, pink cloud state, which is the logical aftermath of following the directions in the big book because after working the steps, I finally felt peace and quiet within. I'm amazed by the wonders of this world, including the presence of a deity that makes everything possible. There were no sacrifices of any kind in any of this work. I didn't give up anything worthwhile, and I received the miracle of a great life. And when I surrendered to my higher power, 
I became a part of something bigger, greater, and more powerful than I am. I'm not sure where I heard or read the following, but it sums up what it's like to be on the other side of step 12, a place where, because I have done the necessary work in order to have that psychic change, that rearrangement of thoughts, based on promises, I'm free to choose what kind of life I will have. I've been told that if you change your mind, you change the world, or at least the way you experience it. Let's take a moment to examine that. The presumption is, if you thought the world was a hostile, ugly place filled with awful people doing awful things, that is what you'd say. Your mind would naturally seek out confirmation for its preconceived ideas. For example, if you're intent on buying a red car, as you go about your day, you'll see lots of red cars. If, however, you were able to sincerely change your mind and see that we are all God in drag, that we are the conscious aspects of a perfect universe which had to create us so we could bear witness and stand in awe before its loving magnificence, then that is the soul-shaking reality you'd be greeted with each and every moment of each and every day. In other words, it's entirely our choice as to what kind of world we live in. With the simple decision of what we are willing to do, we can suffer in the darkness or play in the light. We can be angry, frightened, and enslaved, or loving, joyous, and free. I love analogies, and I'll end with this one. I use the Wizard of Oz. The path is so clear to get to Oz. Just follow the yellow brick road. The path to being recovered is also so clear. The instructions are right in the big book. And as long as I stay on this path, I will get to where I need to be and not encounter winged monkeys or wicked witches. I was always trying to get to a place where someone else would solve all my problems for me. At the end of this 12-step path, I found out that everything I ever needed or wanted was already there. I just had to get rid of the things that blinded me from seeing it. Just like Dorothy found out that she always had the power to get what she wanted to go home, I too found out that I always had what I wanted. A higher power who loves me is always there for me and only wants the best for me. And while all Dorothy had to do was click her heels, all I have to do is let him in. The great part is that to ask for what I already have is to succeed, and I do have God's love. And if I really know the meaning of God's love, then hope and despair are impossible, for hope would be forever satisfied and despair of any kind unthinkable. Thank you. Barbara, thank you so much for your beautiful, thorough, and inspiring presentation this morning on life on the other side of Step 12. We thank you for your service. Barbara's contact information will be offered at the conclusion of this recording, so stay tuned for that. And now we open the floor for questions for Barbara, and you can do so by pressing star 1 to unmute and identify yourself, please. Hi, Barbara. Um, Hi, this is Alita calling from Minnesota. I do have a question. Hi, Alita. (laughs) Go ahead with your question. Hi, thanks. And thank you, Leah, for your consistent service. And thank you, Barbara, for a wonderful share. Um, it's very, very good to hear it. Um, I do have a question, um, and that is that um, you did say um, when you were discussing, elaborating on the steps, um, on step seven, you said, or step 11, excuse me, you said 
I was finally able, and I believe you said, to take step three or to apply step three. And I'm wondering if you can elaborate a little bit more on that. Thank you. Sure. Sure. Step three is only a decision. Um, a lot of people in OA who I've worked with, when they got to step three, they thought at that exact moment they were supposed to turn their life and their will over. The thing with that is that at step three we could do that. This would only be a three-step program instead of a 12-step one. So what happens in step three is that, okay, I have a problem. Maybe there's something that could help. I think I'll give it a try. And the only thing that we're really capable of doing at step three, because our character defects are still getting in the way from being directed. The only thing we can do is make a decision to continue working through. Um, so what happens is in step three, we make the decision to give this power a try. In step seven, we actually give him permission to start molding us into what he wants us to be. And then in step 11, based on experience from each of the previous steps because every step you do shows you there really is a higher power and everything in your life starts changing and when you get to step 10 and God keeps throwing things in your life to teach you lessons and when you learn the lessons they start changing all of a sudden you realize that hey every time I try and be in control everything I've done previous year that I tried to run just turned out horribly and every time God was involved and I listened Everything turned out perfectly or just how it was supposed to be. And from that, you slide into step 11 because it's really not a decision to just say, oh, I'll let God be in charge. It's actually your way of thinking, your way of looking at the world. It's just a feeling that all of a sudden you know there's a higher power and you want him around. And because of your experience, you just say, okay, I'm done giving up control. And that's where step 10 comes in because every time you take control back through either being angry, fearful, or harmful, you immediately do a step 10 and get rid of that. So you're constantly with your higher power. And that's where the decision in step three to turn your life and will over, you don't have the power until you get to step 11 to actually do that. Does that answer your question? Let's assume that's a yes. Alita, thank you for the question. Who's next? Hi, this is Nancy. Nancy, your turn. Thank you. Barbara, thank you so much for your presentation. You said at some point, sorry, I'm walking. Um, you said at some point that um, surrender is not the same as acceptance. That kind of blew me away. Can you elaborate and explain exactly what the difference is, please? Thank you. Sure. Um, one of the things that took me the longest to learn to practice is that one of the things, that, and it's like really it took me a long time to get, if I don't condemn, I don't need to forgive. And what happens is every time I have an opinion that something is wrong or bad or that somebody should be doing something differently, I've just taken back my own will and my ego got involved thinking, oh, I'm better than the person. So what happens is if I'm accepting something, it means that I just have a thought that, oh, this isn't how it should be. It's not the way that I want it. So if I accept something, what I'm saying is, oh, that person's wrong. The situation's bad. They, you know, but I, on my own power, will just accept it and deal with it, thinking that I have the power to say, oh, what they're doing is fine because I never get to a point where, the per let's say, you know, like the person 
constantly keep saying like something over and over and over and say, well, just accept that this is what they do. And then like the next day they say it again and you have that thought in your head of, oh God, you know, I'll just accept it or deal with it or what they're doing is wrong. That's accepting because we never really accept fully, if that makes sense. Where the difference in surrendering is when you're hooked up with your higher power, and this is like that spiritual experience where God is in charge, and you really, with every fiber of your being, believe that, and you surrender to whatever he wants is going to happen. Anything that doesn't go the way that you think it should, it's just a learning process. That whole surrendering thing, you don't have to accept anything because you've just surrendered to it, and you just go with the flow. Acceptance means that I'm doing something, which I don't have the power to do anything. And surrender is I'm just going to go with the flow and not judge it. But it actually took me 12 years to get to the point where every situation I was in didn't affect me with that little knot in my stomach or something where somebody did something and I had to, you know, do a step 10 on it. All that happens now is I sit back and watch the show without judging it or condemning it. And if help is needed, yes, I will give it. But the whole thing is for me to let God be in charge. Thank you, Nancy, for the question. Who's next? If you're not asking a question, if you could remain muted. Thank you, everybody. Oh, I'm sorry. That's my my. Oh, okay. <laughs> That's all right. People are calling already. <laughs> Who's next with a question? Star one to unmute to direct a question to Barbara, please. Hi, this is Kathy in Boston. May I ask a question? Of course, Kathy. Go ahead. Thank you, Leah, and thank you, Barbara, so much. Uh, I really received so much insight from listening to you today. Uh, one of the things that really um, struck me was when you said, when you re- reviewed with us all the service that you do, um, and you still work full time, spend a lot of time with your family, um, and do other things. Um, and this is something that I struggle with a lot since I completed my work and became recovered. Um, I am sponsoring a number of people, and I really love doing that. However, I see that um, there are many times when I feel conflicted about uh, what I'm not doing um, that also needs my attention. And I'm just, I'm just wondering, I think this is a fact of life, that there's always too much to do, how you uh, manage those dilemmas. Sure. One of the things that I learned was that there's always time for what's important. And what I also found, which even before an action plan became one of the tools, I always had an action plan. I always had a list of all the stuff to do. And for me, what I always do, and I still make up the action list, is I make it up with, like, tons of stuff that I think I need to do. And then I look for the top three things that really need to get done. Um, The other thing is that on the other side of step 12, and and I can't explain this until you actually have this own experience, 
everything that I do, 10 seconds before I do it, it is so clear what I'm supposed to do. So I never really get conflicted like, oh, I should be doing this or I shouldn't be doing this or like getting pulled into things that take up lots of my time. One of the things that at the beginning when I first started sponsoring, and this is a whole ego thing, was that I had thought, oh, I have to be the world's greatest sponsor. All my sponsors have to be, you know, like stars so that it would make me look really good. And I would try and direct their lives. Um, and one of the things that I learned is that a lot what took up most of my time was trying to control other people or give them advice or try and force them to do what I thought they should do. And most of the people who I spoke to who now, you know, and this is like people out of program who I hung out with before, most people don't really want advice or anything. They just want to complain. And what, one of the greatest things that I did that if somebody really wants help, it worked, and if they don't, they stop. You know, they just sort of fell out of my life. I give somebody one chance to tell me what's going on in their life that they think is terrible. The second time they talk to me about it, I just say, well, what are you going to do about it? And throw it right back at Because if you really look at where your time is spent, you're probably, if you don't have enough time, and I don't want to use the word wasted, but, but for me, it's, you know, like in the chapter on working with others, it's like don't waste your time on someone who doesn't want what you have. And that also applies to my personal life. Any person who tries to come into my life to make it uncomfortable for me, they don't get to stay in my life. And in the way that I live now, there's, there's not a lot of people who even try and do that anymore. But, but if you make up, my suggestion is make up an action plan, look for the top three things. If you have time then to do a fourth or fifth right, but only do the most important. And, you know, once you do the steps and once you're connected with your higher power, you will be guided. You will have more time than you, like, sometimes I wonder, like, how do I fit so much into a 24-hour period? But I also know that when I walk around the lake and there's a book that I want to read, I get the book on tape and I listen to it as I'm, as I'm walking. So a lot of times I'm doing two things at once, if that makes sense. But um, the real thing is just look for what's important and try and be guided. Thank you, Kathy Kay, for that question. Who's next? Hi, this is Annie. Annie, it's your turn. Hi, thank you everyone so much for your service. Um, I just had a quick question. It's more of curiosity. If you had any experience um, either from yourself or with people you've worked with, of uh, people who are in different fellowships, and how does that coincide um, with um, your OA program? Um, I hear a lot of uh, talk about abundance and time, and I'm just curious as to how um, that would work, if that applies. Thanks so much. Okay, yeah, I've worked with people who are in multiple 12-step groups. And, and here's the real truth. All our diseases are the exact same thing. It's just what you have, like, which your brain goes to. Um, you know, for us, it happens to be the food, alcoholic, drug addicts, you know, gamblers, sex, and whatever. They use it. And if you really look at the steps, it's only step one that says what your problem is. The steps are universal. They'll work for any problem anybody has. And all that step one really is, is like, you know, if it's not broken, don't fix it. It's to make you realize that, yeah, there's something that needs to be fixed. 
And so, so for me, the thing is, anybody who I've worked with, um, and I have, and I go to like open AA meetings, and I and I have worked with alcoholics. I can't identify with them, as, you know, with the alcohol stuff. But when I start talking about, you know, how I just have to have the food, and you know, everything else just it gets ignored, and and the, my behaviors and stuff, it's the exact same disease. So for me, it's like once we get past step one, because they can identify as an alcoholic, I can identify as an as an overeater, and I have actually even gone to, into rehabs with with alcoholics and drug addicts and talked to them, and I say, hi, I'm Barbara. I don't say a compulsive overeater because I'd lose them there. Oh, wow, food. And I don't say food. I say the substance. And what happens, it's the exact same story. So the only problem that I've ever had were where they overlap a couple of times, and I don't want to really use the word problem, is that there's people who are like an Al-Anon or like other support systems that they don't have that problem. And, you know, the, the spouse or the boyfriend or whoever does. And I've never gone to one of these, so I'm not criticizing it. So there sometimes I have a little bit of a of a a problem getting them to realize let's not focus on your husband or your boyfriend's disease and all the stuff that you learned in your support Al-Anon kind of thing and let's just focus on you because I think that's the difference there is that the support is how they can get past that but anybody who's in a 12-step program for themselves I've never had a problem with and neither have they after we've gotten past step one. Thank you Annie for that question. Who's next? Hi, this is Esther. Hi, Esther. Go right ahead. Hi, it's Esther and Kenna. Thank you so much. I wanted to ask a question. You you know, a lot of what's coming through your words is that spirit of, you know, love and tolerance and non-judgmentalness. And, um, and I see where that brings about a peaceful life. But what I'm wondering is what about the situations that re- require us to I wouldn't. I mean, the word judgmental sounds so negative, but to be discerning. I mean, whether we're, if I talk, if we speak about our role as parents, or teachers, um, employers, or even if we look at in our community or the world at large, where you know evil could happen and we need to act upon that, doesn't that require us in some way to look at something and see it as good or bad, or or if we see a child behaving in a way that is not appropriate? So I'm. I'm wondering how to take that spirit of love and tolerance, but still to do our job as uh, parents or teachers, if you had any thoughts on that. Thank you. Okay. Well, for me, I have found um, that no matter where I am or what the situations are, most people, I found, they just want attention. They just want to know that somebody hears them, somebody sees them. So, you know, if I'm at a party and there's kids who are acting up, I'll just go play with them or talk. Because I found that no matter what the situation is, at least in my own experience, that if I go not out of anger and screaming and hollering and trying to change somebody else, if I just go and let them know that they're heard, you know, that seems to, like, work really well. I mean, like, I can't control other people. I can't control the world situation. I can't do anything about all the terrorists and, you know, because I always get I always get this question when I'm trying to talk to somebody about everything turns out how it's supposed to be. Well, what about the Holocaust? What about 9-11? What about, you know, whatever's going on on the news now? 
the thing that I have found by doing the steps is that I am not responsible for anybody else, nor can I change them. Everybody's got to want to change on their own. But I am responsible for me. And one of the things that I learned very, very at the beginning was stop watching the news, stop reading the newspapers. If there's something I need to hear, people will be talking about it because I found that everything in the newspaper and everything on the news is designed to scare me. And what I also found through my writings, through journals for years, is everything I'm afraid of never materialized. I got blindsided by things I didn't even know. But what happens is if I can ignore the world's bad news, unless there's something I can do about it, you know, send money to um, child reach for, like, you know, kids who are starving, you know, St. Jude's volunteer for, like, anything like that, a little bit at a time, I can make a difference. And if enough people do it, it can make a difference. But there's nothing I can do about, like, the evil. I mean, like you said, if you see somebody doing something or it's your job to do something, that's completely different because you are responsible, but you can always do it in a kind, caring, loving manner rather than coming in full force, you know, you know, the, the character defects in full play, you know, and, and there's always a way I find of diffusing a situation through just being kind. And from my own experience, I found that doing that works best, at least for me. I'm not sure if I answered your question, though, did I? Esther Star One, if you'd like to respond. Thank you. I said yes, you did answer the question and mostly just teach saying that it's I can do my part, whatever it is, in each particular situation without having to feel like I need to eradicate, you know, anything uh, on a global way and that whatever I do should be done with, with love and without anger. Perfect. Thank you. Thank you. Thanks, Esther, for the question. Anyone else? This is Kathleen in Virginia. Your turn, Hi. Hi, this is Yelena. Can I ask a question? After Kathleen, sure, Yelena. Okay, so Kathleen, go ahead. Yeah, I have a question uh, concerning the what the previous caller asked. How then do you relate, or do you, the serenity prayer with the whole idea of surrendering to everything? Okay, well, actually, the serenity prayer, my interpretation of it is, I can't change anyone else. I can only change me, and God to help me learn that. And so then it really applies to it, because I really can't change anybody else. And so it becomes that whole surrender thing, because um, whatever people do, they do. And for me, if I'm willing to change, then go ahead, God, come in and change me however you want me to be. So for me, that's complete surrender. Thank you, Kathleen, for your question. Yelena, your turn. Star one to unmute. Hi, this is Yelena. Can I ask a question? Yes, please go ahead. Hi, Barbara. Thank you so much for your share. I was wondering, while doing the steps, what was the most significant turnaround for you? For example, for me, it was when I was in step four, 
in fears. When I was doing a fear inventory, I just realized that all my problems were because I was in my finite self and all the solutions were spiritual and they are going to be solved by my infinite God. Could you please tell what was the most significant turning on for you while working all the steps? Thanks. Okay. The thing is that while I do have like three favorite steps, each one is based on the previous one, so they're all so equally important. But for me, step seven was where everything really started to change. The minute that I would realize a character defect came into play, I would stop, take a deep breath, ask God to remove it, teach me to be the opposite, and then I would act as if I was the opposite. It was amazing how often my character defects came into play. And step seven was the point where I realized that every 25, 30 seconds, I'm being hit by a part of self being threatened, and now my character defects come into play when I really didn't need protection. So seven for me was the biggest one because um, it wasn't that I just said the step seven prayer. Go ahead, God, you know, take away all, all the stuff. Um, it, it was a slow process of me learning to be the opposite because for me, my thought is that God will only do for me what I can't do for myself. I can learn to be the opposite of my character defects if I pay attention to it. Um, God will put me in those situations. But God won't just come in, and, and I'll give you an example. One of my top five is being dishonest. My biggest dream in the world was to find pocketbooks with money hanging out of them and just be able to take the money and no one would ever know. So now I get to step 10, and when I'm on the step 7 part of it, is that all of a sudden, no matter where I went, I went into the ladies' room and there was a pocketbook there, no one around, wall was right there. And I had to make the decision, do I want to be honest or dishonest? Please, God, stop me from being dishonest, teach me to be honest, and then I walked out without taking the money. And what happened was God eventually put me in so many situations where I had a, a decision, be dishonest or honest, and the more I was honest, I became an honest person. And when the right thing came in to take the place of the character defect, that's when God removed it. It wasn't that I just said, oh, please, God, take away my character defects, and the next morning I woke up and they were all gone. It was a slow, steady, every single day process. And step seven was where that happened. Ten was amazing for me. Ten was where I got to see how magnificent God is and how he had his hand in everything. And twelve is actually my favorite favorite. Working with people for me is like unbelievable. It's, it's like the best feeling in the close, even though I always feel close to God and I'm directed. Twelve, when I'm working steps with somebody, ten thousand times even stronger. So I hope that answered you. I, didn't, I don't have one favorite out of a few. Thank you so much. It was very powerful for me. Thank you, Yelena, for the question. Who's next? Sarah W. I hear Sarah W. Who else? Judith. Try again. Becca W. Okay, Becca W. Okay, so let's start with Sarah W., please. Thank you, Leah. Thank you for your service. Thank you, Barbara. That was beautiful. Very, very complete. I really appreciated it. I guess the thought is, you know, there's a lot of different um, mindsets about uh, four steps and utilizing um, ourselves as someone that we put on there. Uh, I've gone back and forth with it, you know, someone that has been 
you know, incested or raped, um, especially, or very violently abused. Um, I'm wondering your thoughts on it. And also, I'd like to hear if I, I'm going to double dip a little bit here so I don't get on again. <laughs> uh, if I could hear a little bit about your 11th step. And with that, I'll pass. Thank you so much. Okay. Um, for the first part, the nine times out of ten, that's what I was saying, we have a part in everything. There's certain things you don't have a part in. Being raped is one of them, being molested, your parents are drug addicts or alcoholics, you know, someone killing your kids. There's like, there's certain things that you really have no part in. But for me, what I was taught by my step sponsor was that it may not be what my part was back then, but what am I doing with it now? And I'll give you an example. Um, my dad never wanted kids. Um, my, they had three daughters on the middle one. And what happened during that phrase is my dad, from the time I was born, let me know I was not wanted, I was not loved, I was in the way. Okay? I had absolutely no part in that. But when I was 16, 17, 18, 19 years old, my interpretation from the way my dad treated me was that guys suck. And so they deserve to be treated badly. They deserve to be stolen from. They deserve to, like, all the horrible things that I could do to them. And so what happens is, like, someone who you're working with, that they were raped. They're, they had no part in that. But are they using it as an excuse for their bad behavior now? And that's the thing for them to look at. Are they still a victim from it? Something that, and, and even though it was terrible, it's not in their present. Your past can't hurt you unless you bring it into your present. Because whatever happened, happened, and it's done. The person who hurt her is no longer hopefully in her life and can't hurt her ever again, but she's still carrying it with her. And that's the purpose of doing the inventories. What are we still carrying that we need to get rid of because it's still making us unhappy and blocking us off from our higher power? And so it's more, it's more the idea of letting somebody know there's no shame in this. You did absolutely nothing wrong, but you've got to let it go. So that's the first part. Okay, and then your second part was, um, I believe, was like how I do my 11th step. My 11th step is uh, before I go to sleep, I look at, I review my whole day. It doesn't take a long time, you know, it goes through. And if there's anything that I miss doing a step 10 on, I quickly do the step 10 on it. I also look at what lessons I was supposed to learn that day because there's, it's, this is a constant learning process. And then that's it. I go to sleep, thank God, for another abstinent day, and I'm done. In the morning, based on what I found the night before, I start making plans on if there was anything that needed to be corrected, how I'm going to either call the person or fix whatever needed to be corrected. And then throughout the whole day, I just am so aware of God's presence. And if I don't feel it, because for me, I actually physically feel it. I feel it's almost like having this electric coat on that I know I'm protected. And if that goes for any reason, it's either that, oh, I need to do a step 10 on something, because even though I don't have the knot on my stomach, I just lost that connection. What made me lose that connection? And so that's my step 11. And, and I can't, you know, like I love using like um, the Wizard of Oz because for me, what I'm supposed to do, where I'm supposed to go, what's supposed to be said or done is so unbelievably clear. It's like um, 
it's being guided. It's almost like having a, a life coach in front of me saying, okay, take three steps to the right and now turn around and go to the, you know, like it's so clear to me. And I can't explain to you how I know it. It just happens. You know, there, there are certain times in my life where I have, you know, needed to either give a speech or do some kind of presentation and I just like you know get on my knees and it's like please God help me and the whole thing is in my head in just a couple of seconds and I can't explain that but that's my step 11 of being guided because there's nothing in there blocking him off and it just and I don't mean to sound arrogant with this there's some people that I've heard this happens to Um, one of the composers I think it was Mozart he would, the whole symphony would be in his head, and he would just transcribe it. That's what happens to me. All of a sudden, in my head, there is a thought that is so bright and so clear, and then right in front of me, all of a sudden, that thing is there. And tell you that the hair on my arm is standing up because I have goosebumps, because this is what happens to me all the time. Thank you, Sarah, for the question. Becca W., your turn. Ilea, thank you so much um, for all your service that you always do. And, Barbara, what a beautiful presentation. Um, What struck me today, and I don't mean this um, to be offensive in any way, because oftentimes perfection can be taken that way, but in your presentation and even in your last answer, um, for me, I take it in as this is the ideal. You know, this is where I ideally want to be, or this is perfection. And when I first recovered, uh, I was, for a while, I was in a period of where I felt like all my decisions were being made by God, um, that I was just a vessel that he was working through. Um, I don't know if that was a pink cloud or not, but that was that was my experience. So I, I almost feel like I can really identify with um, the things that you were saying today. However, um, recently... One of my character defects um, took over, and I made choices that I know I made. They weren't God's choices, and they really disrupted my connection with my higher power. I'm wondering if at any point recently or in the past, something significant more than what could be remedied in, let's say, a step 10 has happened um, and what that experience was like and how you remedied it. Thanks so much. I pass. Okay. Yeah. And, and and just so you know, one of the things that I basically do, no matter how fantastic my life is, which it really, really is, I don't take credit for any of it. I don't even, perfectionism was not even on my list of character defects. What happens is whatever God is doing at this exact moment, whether other people think it's good or bad, for him is perfect and for me. And that's that surrender thing. You know, just so, and the thing is that I've ne- I, I still have not arrived to where I'm supposed to be. I'm only 60. I figure I got another 20 or 30 years for God to keep perfecting me, if I even want to use the word perfecting, molding me into what he wants to be. But because I'm so open to it, it continues to happen. Now, to answer your question, question about there's there's a couple of things um but i'm going to give you like the most powerful one um i was i my grandsons are 19 and 20 
Um, the 20-year-old lives in Florida, and he comes up here, and he knows how I feel about him. The thing is that when he comes up here, I still go to work, and he hangs out with his cousins and stuff like that. Now, my younger sister, who I absolutely adore, which is a very, very righteous person, I was about to get on a cruise, and we were, it was like 10 minutes before we were taking off. My sister called me and told me, Andrew told me he thinks you don't love him because you don't take off of work when he's up. Okay. Now, I've had this discussion with my grandson. It really was a problem, but it sort of snuck in there, and the ship took off, and there was no way that I could get in touch with my grandson to find out if this was true or not. And, I, you know, and as the day was going on, I found myself being a little bit critical, a little bit irritable, and the next morning when I woke up, that sense that I have of God being there was gone, totally gone. And I knew where it came from, from my sister saying that because it had just snuck in and just disrupted my peace of mind completely, and I could not get it back. It felt awful. I felt out of sorts. I wasn't connected. I felt vulnerable. I felt unhappy. Like all the words, who I used to be before program, that's how I felt. And so what I did was I got out of the journal, and I wrote, and I wrote, and I wrote. And nothing happened. I got on my knees and I prayed and I prayed and I prayed. Nothing happened. I went out and looked at the ocean because for me that's my real connection with God. And nothing happened. And there was two days of this. And I have to tell you, I was on the verge of crying. I felt so disgusting. It's the only way to do it. And I got down on my knees and I begged. I Beg God to come back. And all of a sudden I felt it. Now this is going to sound kind of crazy in the next part, but I swear to you this is true. So I'm on my knees. I'm praying. I feel his presence again. And I said, welcome back. And in a loud male voice, I heard, I never left. Which taught me that I'm the one who disconnects, not God. He's always there. So if that answers your question, not being connected, feels horrible to me. Thanks. Thank you, Becca, for your question. Anyone else? Star one to unmute. This is Lauren in upstate New York. Can I ask a question? Of course. And I'm Lauren and who else? Judith. Judith. Okay, Lauren, your turn. Um, hi, Barbara. Thank you so much for your beautiful story. Um, really just filled me with a lot of hope and excitement for the growing to come in this program. And I was wondering if you could talk about um, how you do your Step 10. Um, thank you. Sure. Step 10 I love. Um, most people in OA believe that step 10 is just either getting a journal and, you know, answering a couple of questions or, or reviewing your day at night. That's really part of step 11. For me, and this is like the biggest transformation, is for me whenever I'm upset or feel uncomfortable, right in the center of my stomach, just above my belly button, I get this knot, either big or small. And that would be my cue that something was wrong. So the minute that I got that little knot, I would immediately stop and do step four. Um, If it was that I was mad at somebody, who am I mad at, why am I mad at them, 
what parts of self were hit, um, how did I get the ball rolling, and what character defects allowed me to do that. If, it was a, if it's a fear, it was like, what am I afraid of? Why am I afraid? Do I realize I'm relying on myself instead of God? Column four, what can I do to make sure that this fear doesn't happen? And column five, what character defects would stop me from doing that? Or if it was a harm, it would be who did I hurt? How did I hurt them? What parts of self got stroked? Column four, what should I have done instead? What am I going to do in the future? And column five, what character defects allowed me to do what was in column two? As soon as I very quickly, because I got experience of 20 to 30 times a day doing a step two when I first started doing it, I could do that in my head very quickly. Move on to step six. Do I want these character defects removed? If yes, step seven. Please, God, stop me from being whatever. Teach me to be the opposite. And then I would act as if I was the opposite until I got hit again with the same character defect. And sometimes that act as if would only last 10 seconds. As I did more and more and time went on, it would last a very long time. Step eight, if I harmed somebody, became willing to, you know, make the apology. Step nine, if, you know, if it was not going to harm them more, I would apologize, you know, stop action, apologize, you know, and then, but more important, it would be, okay, God, you know, help me to not do this action again, because that was the most important part of step nine, amending my way so I don't continue to harm people. And then I would do step five, because I didn't want to do five, like if I owed an apology, I said, oh, wait here a second, I would run into my house and make a phone call. I do five at the end. Hi, this is Barbara. I was just mean-spirited. And that's it. No details at all, just the character defect. And I would do this, and I would do this so many times each day. And then it's really funny because step six, the first time I did this, like, oh, yeah, I want the character defects removed. But when I started doing step 10 and the same character defects kept coming up over and over, when I got to step six, it would be, okay, God, I get it. Okay, okay, I really want this removed. And then what eventually happened was I would only do like maybe three a day. And then all of a sudden, like three months later, all of a sudden I realized I didn't do a step 10 once. And the thing is like where I am now, you know, being guided. There's still stuff that comes up, but I can do a step 10 amusing. I never, ever stay upset with anybody. And I, before I, the words even leave my mouth, if I want to retaliate, because that was a big thing for me, you know, quickly do step 10, and the words never leave my mouth. And that's how I do my step 10, as needed immediately. Thank you, Lauren that question. Judith, now it's your turn. Hi, uh, Barbara. Thank you so much for your share. It was really heartfelt. And uh, Leah, thank you for your service. Um, I gained quite a bit from what um, all of what you said, but uh, something that popped out at me was um, the ability or the growth to uh, be who you are in all your relationships. And one of the struggles I'm having right now, having recently recovered, is that I am able to feel and be me in relationship to the direction of my higher power in my OA community and in my other fellowship. And I still struggle with 
folks in my immediate circle, my immediate family, and those who are, for lack of a better way to say it, not like-minded in terms of recovery and all that it has brought to me. So if you can speak a little bit more on how you are who you are genuinely in all your relationships and in all your affairs. Thank you, and I'll pass. Sure. One of the things that I found is that we're all born, you know, just wanting to give love and get love, and we want to have a sense of belonging. And as we grow up, things happen, and character defects come into play to save us. And they might have worked back then, but they don't work now. So now, fast forward, we're adults. Every time a part of self gets hit, one of your character defects come into play thinking that it's helping you, and instead it's just making your relationships worse. So a couple of things that happen. One is that as your character defects get removed and you become who you were born to be, and you don't need to have a different personality with, you know, let's say your church or the people you work with or your family, you just become who you are, who you were born to be. Um, the thing about that is that where you are right now with the people who you're having difficulty with, you have certain scripts that over years, decades have come into play, and you always wind up in the same place with them. So if there's someone who, like, they go visit their mother and it always winds up with the mother criticizing them and them screaming back, they always wind up in the same place because they have a script that they have been doing forever. Once you start doing steps 7 through 11, what happens is you stop doing your part of the script. So like the person who goes over and the mother criticizes how they're dressed, instead of a character defect coming in and trying to protect them and then they argue back with their mother, they could say, you know, whatever it is, something very gentle that doesn't defend themselves because you'll learn once you're hooked up with your higher power, you don't need to defend yourself against anything. Well, people say, there's a, a saying I heard at the beginning, what other people think of me is none of my business. It takes a while to actually have that really happen, but it's really true because just because somebody says something doesn't make it true. But going back to like, the scripts, the minute that you do something different than you've always done, it makes them react differently. And the way that they normally react at first is people don't like change. So they will do everything they can to force you to go back to who you used to be. And from, your own, from my own experience, the more I just like very kindly not fight back, one of the greatest things somebody once told me was to say to somebody, you could be right. What are they going to do, argue with you that they're wrong? You can't use it for every single situation with the same person over and over, but it works. And the minute you start acting differently and then they get to see this is who you really are, they will stop reacting to you or trying to get you to react in a certain way because it no longer works. And for me what happened was before program, all the people I hung out with, oh, God, we ate and ate and ate and complained about the world and how terrible everything was. And the minute that I started changing from this program and I didn't get into those conversations or I said, well, what are you going to do about it? I stopped being fun for these people. They left and moved on to other people. So the only people who are in my life now except for my immediate family are all program people because that's who I'm comfortable with. 
we think the same, our conversations are great, we have so much fun. You know, if there's a situation, may discuss and come up with a solution, and then it's over with. It's not a bunch of people bitching and complaining anymore. And I don't want those people in my life anymore. I want people who enjoy their life that I can go and when I, as I think I heard this from Dr. Phil, all the relationships are supposed to be that when you're with the person, you feel good. And when you leave, you're supposed to feel better for having been with them rather than worse. And that's how every one of my relationships are now. Thank you, Judith, for your question. Anyone else? Hi, this is Sheila. I have a question. Yes, go ahead, Sheila. Hi, good morning. Thank you so much. It was absolutely awesome for good orderly direction, Barbara. I really got quite a bit out of it. My question was, if you could elaborate a little bit more, you had said when some of these defects come up, you had did a process where you wrote them down on paper and you wrote the word why or lie. Could you elaborate or repeat that? I might have missed. I just want to make sure I understood how to do that because sometimes that happens. You've done the work, but yet that old tape replays, and it seems like there's a process that you have to kind of get you back on track when those old things come up. Thank you so much again for your service this morning. Oh, you're welcome. You know, what that is is that, you know, my whole my whole life was in my head. I was always arguing with people. I was always replaying what they had done to me. I never really felt like I fit in. I always felt inappropriate. And the proper reaction to that is rage. So my head was constantly going. When I got to step 10, and then this way I stopped focusing on what everybody was doing and instead just like looking for, you know, be the opposite of my character defects, looking for God in like all this stuff. The retaliating thoughts, like, you know, when you lie down before you go to sleep and your head just won't stop, that stopped. And when I got to step 11 and my prayer life changed instead of me telling God, oh, you know, heal this one, let me win the lottery, like all the, the superficial stuff that I think I have control over, and instead everything I looked at, it would just be thank you, thank you, thank you. My head wasn't constantly going, and because there wasn't so much noise in my head, I got to hear very, very, you're never going to amount to anything. No one's going to watch All the stuff that my dad had said to me as a kid, that before age five, I think the idea is you, you can't distinguish truth from lies and anything an adult tells you, an authority you believe. These were my truths, and my behaviors were that way. So the minute I got to hear these things, because everything else was now out of my head, I, what I did was I took out a piece of paper, and I wrote down the first thing that I heard. And then what I did was, I, and the example that I used, you know, no one will ever want you. Well, all my behaviors may be somebody who acted so inappropriate and not fitting in that no one, you know, would really want me. But the truth is I wasn't as horrible as I, I really was horrible. But, I mean, it wasn't the idea that no one in the whole world would want me. So because I was at a place where I could very calmly, because if you're in the midst of your disease, you can never look at this calmly, okay? Because I was willing to let God change me, and I had had experiences that things were starting to get really good, and I wrote down like that first one, no one will want me. Well, when I look at my truth, when I really question, is it really true that no one wants me? Well, the truth is I have been married twice. 
which meant at least two people wanted me. So because I was in a safe place, I could actually look at that and say, you know what, this isn't true. And then when that stopped being my belief system, I started being more open to people because if my belief system is that no one's going to want me and I'll never fit in, I'll never give anybody a chance to let me fit in or want me. And so my behavior started changing and then my life started changing to the point where you can't imagine how many people are actually in my life now. It's amazing. So I think that that answer is that you write down Thank the line. Thank you so much. Thank you. Okay. Thanks, Sheila, for the question. Uh, this is Carolyn from New York. Yes, Carolyn, your turn. Um, I had a question about um, recovery. Um, I'm newly recovered in vision for the second time, um, and I'm, I'm feeling, I'm not feeling everything that I hear people with really long-term recovery say. For instance, um, that service is the high point of their day. I'm not there yet, and I'm not sure if that means I'm not fully recovered or if I just have a lot of growth to go through as a recovered person, but I still find that sponsoring is a challenge, and when somebody calls me, you know, my first reaction isn't, oh, joy, it's it's like, you know, oh, really? You know, I've got so much else to do. Um, you know, not always, but a fair amount of the time, and, um, and also, I'm a little concerned as again, a second time newly recovered person, um, that, you know, I had a sponsor before who I talked to a lot and we were working the steps very vigorously. And now that I'm, you know, quote unquote recovered, um, it's like you don't need a sponsor anymore. Not in the sense that I don't have one at all, though it seems like a lot of people I've spoken to with long-term recovery don't have official sponsors that they speak to regularly. It's more like they have a, a network of, you know, step 10 turnaround people that they rely on. But, um, you know, I, I don't think I'm at that point yet. And I'm wondering, is there a stage where you're newly recovered where you still need more contact with a sponsor and kind of learning how to be recovered, you know, and, and how to newly sponsor? So so that's my question. Thank you. Sure. I, I know when I first started approaching 12, you know, once I was doing my 10s for a while, one of the things that happened is who I had become was the complete opposite of hers. And I really needed people there, especially a sponsor who knew me from the beginning, because one of the things that kept going through my head was that I can't get really close to anybody because this really isn't me, and if they get close, they'll know this is all a big lie, until I actually like talked to my sponsor and I got a writing sponsor and did a whole bunch of, of questions about, you know, what's, you know, what's so scary about that kind of thing, where... I could never have done this program without a sponsor, without a food sponsor, without a maintenance sponsor, without a writing sponsor, definitely without a step sponsor. Every person was put in my life at the exact moment when I needed them. Um, when I first became recovered and wasn't sure if this was really who I was or if it was just, you know, I, I couldn't, I didn't even know what it was. It wasn't me acting like I was recovered. It just happened. Going to a restaurant and them having like bring a dessert came with the meal and, and me just saying no thank you or other people eating stuff and it would be right in front of me and it meant nothing. I knew that I was recovered. I just didn't have the experience yet to know that this is something that as long as I stay spiritually fit, this is how I'll be from the time I wake up to the time I go to sleep every day that I'm willing to do what I need to do to connect to my higher power. 
Now, me personally, I've been in program for 14 years, and I normally don't say this to too many people. I don't call in my food anymore. I plan it every day, but I don't call it in. And my reason for that is if you look at someone who's alcoholic, who has put down the drink, and they don't go to a bar, they don't even drink wine, they don't call their sponsor every day and say, I'm going to have four glasses of, of water and two cups of coffee and some juice and some milk. They just don't drink the alcohol. They're still in contact with their sponsor, either that are meeting or going out to dinner or something, but they don't have to focus on, I'm not drinking alcohol because they just don't. And for me, because of where I am now, the food is no longer a problem. I mean, I'm running lunch for at work on Tuesday. I went to Costco and I bought trays and trays of desserts. They're sitting in my living room. I can look at them. It's the same as looking at the couch. But at first, I couldn't do that. So what happens is for me at this point, I don't have to call someone and tell them, you know, I'm having fruit, I'm having a salad, because I don't have to focus on the food. It's no longer a problem for me. What my telephone calls are more about is either like helping somebody doing their steps, letting somebody vent about something that they're unhappy with with their life, or making plans to spend time with people. My focus is no longer on the food. So for me, I don't call my food in anymore. I don't have a food sponsor anymore. I don't have um, a maintenance sponsor anymore. But I do have what I call my spiritual sponsor. Magnificent, magnificent guy that if I need to vent about something, I can call him. I know he's there. But we go out to dinner once a month just to catch up on stuff. Because for me, on the other side of step 12, I learned that there's nothing of this earth that could ever stop me from eating or give me a good life. What I need to do is stay connected to my higher power, and he's the one who's going to do all this stuff for me. But at the beginning, sponsor is absolutely magnificent. You really need it. And even just one more thing, sorry to go off, is that most of the people who I sponsor, when they're on the other side of 12, they don't call their food into me anymore. So this way it gives me the opportunity to take on somebody new, and I'm not still working with the same three people for 20 years. So I hope that answered your question. Thank you. I do have... Hi, this is Florence from Virginia. Hello? Yes. Go ahead with your question. Oh, hi. Florence from Virginia. Okay, um, I do have a question, but first I just want to say thank you. Thank you. You more than connected the dots for me, Barbara. This is such a thorough presentation. I think if there's any hesitancy in sharing it um, from the other end of the phone, I think people like me are just kind of overwhelmed. And also my, my higher power got involved. I had a hard time unmuting, which means I was listening, listening to all the beautiful comments. And it makes me think of someone who's blessed and, and how... I come from the Christian tradition, you know, you use the gifts and, and you get more, and that, that's that's what I'm hearing today. And I, 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 unbelievably, I still think I'm a unique person and that the steps aren't going to work for me, and I hesitate to work them because I'm afraid I'm the one person that they won't work for. Why should they work for me? So so I, I want to say, say uh, can you hear me? Yes. I'm on page 65 because you kind of went through the, the, the columns. Uh, I've been listening to Vision for You, and uh, people may know, know my voice, and people have been kind to talk to me, and, and I've had a wonderful physical recovery in a, in, a, in, a, in, a, in a related program. But I'm shy on the steps, although um, 
I'm just I'm just with you with this spirituality. I mean, it just brings tears to my eyes. I I I I get it, and and um, but I don't get it every day. <laughs> so I thank you for your share, and it's and um, I can understand why people love to work with you. So um, can you talk a little bit about how you work? If I heard you right, those the four columns, and thank you. Sure. Um, what I do is I do exactly what the big book says, okay? And um, what I do for for um, for the fourth step inventory, if you're on page 65, you're probably talking about resentments. Like if you go to the bottom of page 64 where it starts, it says um, we've listed people, institutions, or principles with whom we were angry. So I have the person just get out a piece of paper and write down every person they're upset with. You already, everybody knows who they're mad with, you know, or what they're mad about. So as they're done with that, then the next instruction says, we asked ourselves why we were angry. So the first name comes off the list, it goes onto the form, and then in column two, everything that they ever did to us. Then when we're done with that person, we'll go to the second name on the list, move them over to the form, do the same thing, and continue doing that until you're done with each name. Then go back to the book, and it says, uh, in most cases, it was found that our self-esteem, our pocketbooks, our ambitions, our personal relationships were hurt or threatened, so we were sorry we were put on. Um, on our grudge list, we said opposite each name, our injuries. It was it to our self-esteem, our security, our ambitions. So that's column three, little check mark, which things got hurt. The funny part is there's six parts of self. The more check marks you have, the more angry you are. That's like the funniest part. Then they mm-hmm. give you examples. Then he, talk, um, you know, then he talks about we went through our lives. Let me just go to the part where it says... Uh, on page 66, three quarters of the way down, we turned back to the list where it held the key to our future. We're prepared to look at it from a different angle. Um, so it says, um, I'm just trying to see where that's. There's one part that says, didn't we ourselves get the ball, ball rolling, okay, a little further down. Um, and so that's column four. What did I do? Because everything in this world is cause and effect. You know, my mom returned to brownie outfit. Why? My column four was I didn't set the table. You know, there's, there's you know, a whole bunch of, you know, if you even look at, at Bill's, oops, let me just turn back to his, um, that he's, you know, he's mad at Brown for paying attention to his wife. Well, what's his column for? He left her alone to go drinking, you know, um, that somebody would get his job as, at the office. It's because, you know, he doesn't show up, he doesn't complete things, he passes account, that kind of stuff. So that's column four. And then column five is, you know, what character defects allowed me to do this stuff. And then the, because the truth is the, the inventories are more just to get to the character defects. And that's how I do my step four. I go through the big book line by line, and every time there's an action, whether it was me, I took it, or whether I'm teaching somebody, we stop and they do that action. And we don't move forward till they're done with that one action. Because one thing about this book that's great, it was written for people because back in the 30s there weren't a lot of meetings, there weren't a lot of sponsors. This book was written for someone who had no contact with someone who could take them through. The thing that I found, though, and one of the reasons I only do steps in person is that fourth 
column? What, how did I get the ball rolling? No one's ever looked at that. And that becomes really hard for people. And I have to see a look in their eye that, oh, my God, I get it, that it was my actions that did that. And, and that takes a long time. Like I have somebody coming this afternoon. It could take 10 minutes to explain that to her or it could take 10 hours till she gets it. And as a sponsor, I'm willing to give the time that they need. Okay. Thank you so much. Put me up. Thank you, Florence. Anyone else? Barbara, thanks for all your time here. Anytime. <laughs> Anyone else, or are all minds cleared? Sue G. Sue G., your question, please. Thanks. Hi, Carol. Hi, Leah. Thanks so much for your service. Thank you, Barbara. What a beautiful message. And I am a babbling brook, so I'll try to keep it short. Um, I love your message of recovery. And I'm thinking in my in my recovered state here in the city of brotherly and sisterly love, um, I'm very, very aware of how there's such a message that transcends our own fellowship. It's not only human being to human being, but it's fellowship to fellowship. And I wonder if you have any experience you might share with us about um, doing with people who are recovered in other 12-step fellowships, such as our, you know, uh, AA, Al-Anon, et cetera. Those are mentioned all the time. but uh, And we don't have to mention them. That's really against tradition. But uh, um, what what encounters you've had um, or have you had encounters, you know, with, with people in other fellowships where the sharing of the recovery is such a, a an enriching and wonderful experience. So uh, that's my question. I hope I posed it clearly, and I pass. Okay. Um, I've had all kinds of experiences. Ninety percent of them have been absolutely wonderful. I go in. I say hi. I'm Barbara, a compulsive overeater. A friend of mine says hi. I'm so and so from another program. What I found is that anybody who's recovered, anybody who has done the steps, understands it's the same disease. It's not really that I'm an overeater or they're an alcoholic or a drug addict. We're all suffering from a spiritual malady. And anybody who has done the steps as outlined in the big book understands that and are open to everything. Now, I've also had it where I've gone like to, um, on the ships, they have friends of Bill W., and I've gone in and, you know, everybody gets to share, and I raise my hand and say, hi, I'm Barbara, a compulsive overeater. And the woman to my right goes, oh, if we're going to talk about food, I'm leaving now. You know, so I've had negative reactions. The funny part about this woman is that um, I just turned to her and said, let me do one share, and if you don't think we have the same disease, I'll go read the big book on my own. She wound up being my best friend. <laughs> um, my Wednesday night meeting, which is Stones, Successful Together on Nothing Except Steps, it's any group can come in there, and they, we read the big book together and discuss it and help people who want to go through the steps. Um, they are so open. Um, the only thing that I have found is that if I go to an open AA meeting where they don't know me, they won't really give me a chance to share. You know, and, and I, you know, like I'm guided by my higher power. So, like, if he does, if it's not meant for me to share, it doesn't matter. My ego doesn't get in the way. 
you know, but I've had it where, um, you know, as I said, both ways, where I'm totally accepted or where I'm not, and then it always turned out okay because, unfortunately, not everyone who's in the rooms, no matter what 12-step program it is, not everyone who's in there has a program. And so, and I realized that. So if somebody actually needs to be upset because I'm there, that has to do with them and has really absolutely nothing to do with me. And it's just they'll have to learn or find their own way through the steps in order how not to be angry at something as simple as somebody from another program being there. Thank you, Sue G. Carol from England, I believe you have a question. Star one to unmute. Hi, Leah. There you are. Go ahead. Do you have a question, Carol? Ah, uh, there. I know. Go well. Sorry about that. Um, I sure do. Thank you so much. Um, I want to ask a similar question, if I may, um, but in a different way about belief. Um, when I hear stories about life beyond our wildest dreams, I get a little deflated sometimes. I have, like other people have said, I, get, I have an insidious belief, and mine is that great things will never happen to me. I've been given a wonderful life, and somehow I have the ability to just leap in and enjoy it. And, and you know, and, and what I tend to do is I go two ways. I either say, God, I believe, help me with my unbelief, or I kind of file it under me seeking power, prestige, money, and property again. How do you help a sponsor, um, you know, get through that, please? Thank you. And I love your uh, your reference to the Wizard of Oz. That's right up my street. Thank you. <laughs> um, one of the things that I had once read in, not Lifeline, Sam, but just Lifeline, a woman had read it in and wrote, God didn't make me look good in my jeans so that I look good. He made me look good in my jeans so I can be an example to other people. And I love that. And so, like, for you, and this is just a suggestion because I really don't know you and it's not a criticism, make sure what your motives are. Are your motives that I want a really good life so that I can have a really good life and everything's going really great? Or are you doing it because you really want to let God in so that you can be an inspiration to other people? If you're having some kind of problem with your belief system that, you know, that great things should happen to me or that they will never happen to me, remember, we're self-fulfilling prophesizers. So what, you know, what you think you'll make happen anyway. And for me, it also... Because when I first started being really grateful, that constant state of gratitude, it's, my life was so difficult that I needed, in order to believe God, and he really didn't have to do this, I needed my life to get easier. And it started off with things as I would go to a store and somebody would be pulling out of the first parking space. doesn't mean God had to do that or does that for everybody, but because I had, was developing a connection, and instead of saying, oh, good, I got here on time, or taking the credit for it, I would just say, thank you. And what happened for my belief that God was going to make my life better, or that because he was in it, it was getting better, um, I started noticing things. Like a couple of weeks ago, I couldn't get out of my own way to get out the door and go to work. And so I was like three minutes later than I normally, normally go. And when I got on the major highway, 
where I would have been three minutes previously, there was an eight-car pileup. The cops weren't even there yet. I was like, oh, thank you, God. And so from my own experience, I went from, well, maybe this is true, to I know it's true, because based on my own experience for looking for it, I got to see God's hand in everything. And as a result of that, and then how I would feel when I would listen to the messages, how much better I felt and how much easier it was to resist the food and how much better my relationships were and my daughter who hated me now loved me and wanted to hang out with me and my finances, which were terrible, all of a sudden I could go on vacation. Like everything in my life continued to get better because I was grateful for everything and I was looking for that stuff. And based on looking for it, I found confirmation that it was true. So that might help you with your belief system, but my suggestion is really look at your motives, why you think you should have this fantastic life right now. Because if it's ego, it's going to be your will instead of God's will, and it's not going to turn out great. Thank you, Carol, for the question. And thank you, Barbara, for all your time this morning and your special presentation. That was so inspiring for all of us. Thanks for the questions, everybody. Alita, Nancy, Kathy, Annie, Esther, Kathleen, Yolena, Sarah, Becca, W, Sheila, Carolyn, Florence, Lauren, Judith, Suji, and Carol, thank you so much. And I'm going to close the meeting in the way we always close our meetings here on A Vision for You. Page 164. Our book is meant to be suggestive only. We realize we know only a little. God will constantly disclose more to you and to us. Ask him in your morning meditation what you can do each day for the man who is still sick. The answers will come if your own house is in order. But obviously you cannot transmit something you haven't got. See to it that your relationship with him is right and great events will come to pass for you and countless others. This is the great fact for us. Abandon yourself to God as you understand God. Surrender your faults to him and to your fellows. Clear away the wreckage of your past. Give freely of what you find and join us. We shall be with you in the fellowship of the Spirit and you will surely meet some of us as you trudge the road of happy destiny. May God bless you and keep you until then.